Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. Dude, have you noticed how fast I'm getting at saying fitness and nutrition? I have not noticed. Dude, I, I was I had to replay something. Maybe it was... I usually say nutrition and fitness, but... I think it was the YouTube video. Mm. And I said I I own Tailored Coaching Method Fitness uh, fitness and Nutrition Online Coaching Company or whatever. Online. Yeah. An online fitness and nutrition there coaching you go. company. Yeah. And uh, I heard it and it was like... Online, blah, 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 blah. I was just like, holy shit. Yeah. And then every time I do the intro, I'm like, damn, I just like spit that out. Or forget. Or forget it completely. Yeah. And just don't say anything. <laughs> All right, cool, guys. Well, we have a Q&A today. We have a lot of good questions from the podcast group. So if you have not joined that, please click the link in the bio and join there. Um, so let's get started here. We have uh, the first two questions are relatively the same. So I'm going to ask both of them, and he will give one answer. So the first one's from Asha, Ash D.B. Bree. It says, how often should you sh- switch up your workout?" And then Gina D'Amelia says, is it better to change up your workouts periodically or better to focus on increasing reps or volume over time? Yes, this is, these are good questions. Um, And they're definitely, they relate because my answer to the second one would probably answer the first one, right? And I think how often you change your workouts up should depend on how you're changing your workouts in the first place. Um, so there's a few different ways to kind of like a few different things to cover in this entire topic. So, uh, Gina's question of, um, should you change up your workouts or should you just basically progress them? Cause that's basically what she's asking. Should you just add sets over time? Um, the answer is yes to both. Like, I think that you should change up your workouts, but you should also add sets over time because if, and it obviously depends on what you're after too. Um, but there's, there's layers to this. And the first la- layer, the uh, importance of a hierarchy, the first thing we got to think of is progressive overload. Adding sets over time is a form of progressive overload. And if our goal is to build muscle or change our physique, then the form of progressive overload that's probably going to be the most advantageous is going to be adding volume over time. Typically, we do this by adding sets. There's some research on adding uh, reps and doing a, a reverse linear progression is what it's called. Um And I don't think much research has been done on this, so I'd like to see more because it's really confusing. But if you think of linear progression, we go volume gets lower over time and intensity goes up, right? Very, very simple. And then you would recycle that over time. Uh, What this would look like is, and I've broken this down so many times in the podcast, but week one is 12 reps, week two is 10 reps, week three is eight reps, week four is six reps. You're doing less reps as the weeks go on, which means you can do more weight. Mm -hmm. Volume goes down, intensity goes up. Um, that works really well for hypertrophy, strength, because it accumulates volume over time, so on and so forth. They did a reverse linear because if you do the math of like sets times reps times weight, they did, well, what if we go six reps, eight reps, 10 reps, 12 reps? And if we do that consistently, we actually are adding more reps, which technically is more volume over time. And it got worse results, which is really weird because technically if you add more volume, you should build more muscle. So I don't really understand the mechanisms there. It might be neurological to where you don't build as much strength in that one. So when you recycle those four week, that, that mesocycle, that block, maybe it's not as conducive to more growth because you're not building any strength to add on top of that. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure, but the point is, is we have to have some kind of progression, right? And the problem with just adding sets is that there's diminishing returns. Mm. I mean, there's diminishing returns because you can only do so much without, uh, training more than you're able to recover from, but also 
how much time do you have? Yeah. I mean, if you just keep adding sets, like uh, I was, so in there I did four sets of squats and then it was three sets of leg extensions and Bulgarian split squats, right? So that's 10 total sets on my quads in that session, which I do on purpose because if you go over about 10 sets, I think the, the, the range is eight to 10 for one muscle group in a single session, you start to have diminishing returns. Muscle protein synthesis does not continue to elevate. You actually start increasing cortisol and, um, uh, too much and you start basically doing too much work in a single session, you can't recover from it. So there's no point in going further than that. But if I'm supposed to progress from a sets perspective, where do I go? Mm. I'm already at 10, which means I'd have to do a second day with 10 more sets of quads, which would be a lot of quads. But then after that, where do I go? Right. And this is why people end up doing high frequency where they're doing like four sets quads every single day, or they start doing like morning and night sessions. There's a lot of bodybuilders that do that and it works. Yeah. But most of us don't have time for that shit. Like it's just crazy. Right. And so, and a lot of us don't have the, the lifestyle, stress management, nutrition, sleep protocols, all these different things in order to facilitate recovery from that kind of total work. So you can add sets over time, but to me, switching up your workouts, and I'm circling back here, switching up your workouts is how we add sets over time without it getting to this just ridiculous point of you're doing the same thing over and over again, or you're just adding more and more time. Um, it's a way that we can change things up and add a little bit slower and create a new stimulus, which is still a progression without just relying on one thing. So if we change up our workouts, we can add maybe some reps, some sets, and some actual load, so intensity, mm -hmm. and just a little tiny amount instead of a big amount, right? And you like do increments. that in increments, very yeah. small increments. Instead of sticking with one and having to do a lot of it, you do a little bit of it, and that way you can stretch that progression over time more easily. Um, the other thing is, psychologically speaking, if you don't change your workouts up, you're going to get really bored. If you're really bored, you're not motivated to train hard. And if you're not training hard, your effort's not high enough or close enough to failure that you're actually going to stimulate any growth anyway um, or any stress to the muscle or out of uh, nervous system to adapt effectively. Uh, so where does this land us? I would say like everybody has their own sweet spot. I think that it depends on how fast you progress uh, and your experience level, So, um, which are tied together. So a, a new person, I would say, honestly, I like, mesocycles are like four to six weeks for somebody who's brand new to lifting, which is a long time to do the same exact exercises. But if you're doing maybe your main lifts of the entire program or squat bench deadlift, and then you have like a, um, a lunge variation, a row variation, a chin up, um, dumbbell overhead press, like things like that. You're so new to lifting that there's still a lot of skill left to be gained and practiced to master those movements that I think you're going to be able to spend time, more time doing those exact same movements week after week and still making pr progress, mm. right? You're going to keep adding five pounds of the bar for way longer than I would because I've been doing those movements for 10 years. So I'm not going to get as much out of it. I've already mastered the movement. It's harder for me to add weight or add volume to it. So I have to change it up more regularly. Whereas somebody who's brand new doesn't have to. So I like four to six weeks per block. Uh, and this is the other thing is it's, it depends on what you mean by switching up your workout. So if somebody says they want to, uh, or like how often should I switch up my workout? Do you literally mean like you're doing an upper lower split and you change to a full body? Like that is what changing your entire workout means to me. Whereas changing up the movement patterns within a workout is a little bit different, mm. right? So um, this is why I don't like the term workout as much as training session, training week or microcycle, training month or mesocycle block. These kind of dignify like I'm in this program, but there's a specific block of this program, a certain phase of this program, a certain microcycle of this program. 
and that's a little bit easier. So I think you should stick with the same split, same program, quote unquote, for a solid 12 weeks at least, uh, up to 16 weeks, right? Three to four months. You can do it for longer too. If your lifestyle is way better with a four-day split and you like upper lower, you can stick with that shit year-round. It doesn't matter. And you go through phases where maybe you have a uh, six-week, I guess it would technically be microcycle. It's hard to do this, but like if we had a six-week block and it was two mesocycles, so three weeks each, for six weeks we're in the, maybe it's a strength block, and you're in the like one to five rep range. So everything's really heavy, low volume, high intensity. Um, after three weeks, you change out some of the exercises. So maybe you're doing a progression like five, three, one for the compounds. So bench squat, deadlift stays the same, but your Bulgarian split squat on your leg day goes from that to a, uh, walking lunge or a front squat or something like that. Different accessory lift, but you're still in that rep range, still the same strength focus. Then you go into the next six-week block and it has two mesocycles that are in the five to 10 rep range. So you're okay. accumulating volume. It's accumulation phase. Then you go into the next one, which might be even higher volume. Maybe you're doing a metabolite phase. And this is how um, like Brad Schoenfeld does a lot of his periodization now, which is really smart. It's like a, like a sciencey way to do hypertrophy periodization, which is still like not that well studied, but um, he has a strength phase and then he goes into a, uh, like he calls it a moderate range phase, which is basically general hypertrophy. You're doing some like sets of six, but mainly sets of like eight to 12 normal hypertrophy range. And then you have a metabolic phase, which is metabolite training. You're doing sets of at least 15 upwards of like 30 reps, really long duration sets, burning lactic acid accumulation, that kind of stuff. You're training the metabolic system. uh, You're training the tissues in the metabolic range. Um, and then you cycle back to the strength phase, right? You could do that with the same split the whole time, or you can change the split depending on the phase, depending on the stimulus and the stress. So there's so many different ways to do it. I think that generally what I see that works best is that people stick with the training split that they enjoy the most and fits their lifestyle the most. Um, and then from there, like for me, I would say 75% of the year I'm doing an upper lower four day split. It generally is the easiest for me to recover from. It fits my lifestyle and schedule the best. I can tailor it to the specific block or phase I'm in if I'm doing yeah. strength or hypertrophy. Just easy, you know? So I generally stick with the upper lower split most of the time. Uh, but I can go through, which I've done recently, like a, a strength phase where I'm in for months at a time doing lower rep ranges, building strength, and then I shift into more of a hypertrophy focus, right? Um, and I'm actually kind of playing with things, and I want to I wanna really detail out like a, a sequence um, obviously it's, for me, it's always testing for the app, right? But like a really, really pe- well periodized hypertrophy, um, program to see if it does make a difference. Cause a lot of science shows that periodization for hypertrophy just doesn't really matter, but it's hard to do a good study on that. So I'd like to see people go through it and myself go through it. Like we're spending a full block doing strength, a full block doing moderate volumes and a full block doing super high volumes and cycle back. And it's like a six month process of block periodization, but specifically for hypertrophy, whereas most block periodization research is done on strength. Totally. But that is changing your workouts every three to four weeks. However, it's not because you're doing the same split. So it's so hard to say. Um, I think ultimately it depends on your goals, depends on what you're doing. It depends on why you want to change it too. I think a lot of people change it because um, they get bored. And I think what you should be trying to figure out is what can I change to avoid boredom without changing the actual periodization or the plan of the program? Because if you're bouncing from program to program and focus to focus, you don't give your body enough time to get the best results out of that program. So instead of going from uh, like a full body 
uh, strength program to a like bro split hypertrophy program to more of like a crossfit and you're just bouncing all around you're not going to get good at any of them because you have such a short period of time in each spend a solid few three to six months doing the one type of program but change out your accessory and isolation exercises every two to three weeks so that you have more fun yeah right that's what a lot of the programs in the tail trainer do is like every three weeks you go from a dumbbell lateral raise to a kettlebell upright row you're still doing shoulder abduction and working the delts. Your muscles are stupid. They know you're doing this movement pattern and they know you're creating tension in the delt. So it's going to grow. But you feel like it's different. It's a different tool. It's a different exercise, different rep range maybe. We add a pause, do some fun shit like that. And it keeps it exciting. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So um, that's, I think, it's a long-winded answer, but I think that's the best way to change your workouts up without just shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. You know? Love it, man. Cool. Let's go on to the next one. We have one coming from Linda Lawan. It says, I recently started taking a few supplements, fish oil, joint movement, etc., which increased my daily calories by 65. According, accordingly, I reduced my calories by the amount in, amount in food. Is this an overreaction or is it, can it be detrimental? I think it depends on your goals. Um, I think there's a situation I can think of that it would be overreactive and you probably don't got to worry about it. And there's a situation where I would track it. So for example, if you're trying to lose body fat, if you're in a deficit, if you're approaching your goals, calories count. So factor those in, you know, fish oil has fat in it. That's probably where the majority of those calories come from. Um, so yeah, I would definitely factor that. In. Now, if you came to me and you're in a maintenance phase and you're not trying to lose fat, I would say like, let's add these supplements, track them. But if it's 65 calories and four or five grams of fat, we're just going to add four to five grams of fat to your macros. Like, it's not a big deal. Um, there's also scenarios where somebody will start working with us and they're going to start approaching fat loss. And maybe they have literally uh, been taking fish oil and a greens drink every single day for months on end, but not tracked it. And then we come aboard, we jump into a deficit, we start the deficit, and then I find out that they're taking this and they haven't been tracking it. I'll say just don't track it. Just keep it untracked because it's a variable that goes unchanged. As long as you're actually drinking that greens drink and having that supplement every single day, we don't need to waste your calories on it because you were already doing that when I created the deficit, you know what I mean? And you weren't tracking it when I created the deficit. So I created the deficit off of it not being there. Yeah. So let's continue the deficit with it not being there. Um, but if you are tracking it already and you start deficit, yeah, count those, you know. So it, it's not it, – there's no right or wrong answer there. Um, but definitely I think that there's there's plenty of times where if you're – can't hurt you. No. And if you're at maintenance, it's like you had some gum and there's 20 calories. Like don't fucking – that's overkill. You know, you're just going to drive yourself crazy. I think um, I track supplements that have calories. I track my greens drink, reds drink, and fish oil. Right, because the greens and reds from uh, first form they have calories in it. It's micronized vegetables and micronized fruit, and then the fish oil has fat. But um, my pre workout might have ten calories. Some I don't track it. I think my rock stars have five calories. I don't track it. You know, it's just it's not. It's an unchanged variable. I drink four a day, no matter what. That's <laughs> fifty calories right there. Yeah, dude. no shit. But it's every day, so yeah. it doesn't matter. Um, but it's also, it's calories from sugar alcohols, and it's, it is a little bit different. Like, it's it, it's sugar-free stuff. And um, I think there's just, there's a period of time where people start tracking, th- like, I see people track their calories, their macros, their water intake, their fiber, their step count, their sleep hours. And at a certain point, I'm like, hey, let's track what really matters to get yeah. the result you want, and let's just disregard the rest because it just gets overwhelming. You know, like, calories, macros, steps. 
And within your calories and macros, the little things that don't make a difference, don't worry about don't them. Stress you know, yeah. people track supplements and sodium. They like, they'll scan their, their seasoning. And I'm like, oh, are the calories and seasoning? No, I just track so everything's in there. Don't do that shit. It, it just is just ridiculous. And if we hit a plateau and I think it's because of water retention, I'll ask you, are you, how much salt are you using? And you'll tell me and I'll let you know if that's the issue. But the, the, the biggest issue with dieting adherence is typically boils down to psychology, right? People typically don't fall off a diet because physically or physiologically they can't sustain anymore. Like their body is, is under like deprived or they don't have energy or the hormones are shot. It's usually because they're mentally just taxed from dieting. Yeah. Which is why I've leaned on, as I've become a coach for longer, I've leaned more on intuitive diet breaks than I ever had in the past. Whereas in the past, it was like, we're taking a diet break. That means, according to science, we're increasing our calories to maintenance via carbohydrates, keeping fats low. Like, we did it by the book. And if you're competing or doing a photo shoot, yeah, we'll still do that. But for most people, I'm like, hey, this is a chance. We're going to practice being intuitive. You're going to go on vacation with your family. You're going to enjoy. Just don't overeat. Like, practice being mindful and actually stopping when you're full. And avoid the apps so you don't, you know, mentally tax yourself totally. during the journey. So, yeah. Love it. Cool. We got one more here. We got one from Andrea McMath. It says, sorry, I have a weird question. Oh, that's always a good start. Can you actually be in a deficit without feeling hunger? Or does it does not being hungry mean you are not actually in a deficit? I have become an expert in, in volume, low-calorie food when cutting, but sometimes I struggle with feeding with feeling like I am not hungry. It means I'm not really burning fat. I want to know if it is possible to be burning fat without actually being hungry. Damn, that's a good question. Um, yes and no. So um, the no one is the easier part. So the reason I say no is because there are situations where you can be in a deficit and you're not hungry. It's just a, a matter of, like she said, she's an expert in low volume foods, um, which as of today, as we're recording this, we just dropped a blog and it's called, uh, I think it's called 15 low calorie foods to fill you up. And it's exactly what it is. It talks about hunger hormones. It talks about creating a diet with low volume foods, or I'm sorry, high volume, low calorie density foods. And the whole point of that is, you know, like when, so for example, uh, oatmeal, right? Mm -hmm. When I would had more calories in my diet or I was eating less meals per day, I'd have a whole cup of oatmeal. That's when you cook a whole cup of dry oats and then you put things in it, it's a big ass bowl of carbohydrates. And when I shifted to more meals or when I go into a deficit, I will cut that in half, right? I go to half cup. It feels like nothing is yeah. in that bowl. So what do I do? I put baking powder in it. Can't taste the baking powder, but when you cook the oats and have baking powder in it, it creates way more volume. But baking powder goes into the oats and you don't have to put much. You put like a half a teaspoon mm. and it makes it super fluffy, right? Another example of this is, and this is going to sound weird to people, but it works really well, uh, and my grandma taught me this. If you're cooking eggs and you want to do like an omelet or scrambled eggs, works really well with like a frittata too because you bake it in the oven. So if you want to get more out of your egg whites, you can put like a quarter of a cup of cottage cheese. Cottage cheese expands when it's cooked. And then you can cook it like an omelet, right? Mix the cottage cheese and the scrambled eggs, like beat it together, put it in the pan and then bake the pan and it'll fluff up like a pizza because the cottage cheese expands and the eggs expand when you bake it rather than cook it on a stovetop. But now I just took that same exact 250 calorie meal and made it way more filling yeah. because there's more volume there. But also because the perception of it, when I look at it, it looks like way more food and therefore my mind's going to tell me that I'm more full because the placebo effect <laughs> is a real thing. Um, 
And that is what essentially high volume, low calorie density yeah. foods are, right? Um, if you eat two whole eggs cooked in oil on the stovetop, it's not that big of a meal, but it's way more calories than what I just described, right? And so that's where we start playing with foods. And so she's become a really good expert at that. Now that can literally do it. So you can do things like I just said, and it can essentially trick your hunger signals, right? It, it can make you feel like you're not as hungry as you actually are. Um, there's also research and I like, I post that reel today about this. There's research on, and we talk about this in the blog, the blog's written from Rose. Uh, she did a really good job and she referred to study, but there was uh, two groups. Each group had a shake. Uh, one shake was, I think the shake was 140 calories and the other shake was like 600 calories or something. Uh, maybe it was like 240. It was pretty dramatic difference, but really the, all the shakes were actually like 400 calories. Okay, they were yeah. dead center and everybody thought that. It's just that one group had a label with lower calories. One group had a label on the shake with higher calories. And uh, then they they followed their like physiological signals. So leptin, ghrelin, the hunger hormones. Yeah. And then they did a questionnaire. And they asked the people that did the low calorie shake, like, how is your hunger? All that. They were hungry. They wanted more food. They weren't satiated. The group that ate the higher calorie shake was completely satiated, did not want any more food. And they saw a change in ghrelin and leptin. So for the group that had the higher mm -hmm. calorie shake, their hunger hormones were supporting less hunger, right? Because they're full. That's what happens, right? The hunger hormones spike in the way that we don't want. It means we are hungry and we're going to keep eating, which is what happened to the low calorie meal, even though they all had the same thing, um, which just goes to show like, you know, number one, what you perceive the food to be will help you be full. Like okay. if you, if you purposely make a food more voluminous, you're already telling yourself this is going to be more filling. And then you see it and it fills up more parts of your plate. You're also going to look at it and go, wow, this is going to be a really filling meal. Um, so there's, there's tricks like that, that can literally from a psychological perspective and therefore, and somebody commented the perfect thing. It was Aaron Stryker. Um, and he said, uh, he said something like, this great context. And then he said, uh, the physiological affects the psychological. And I was mm -hmm. like, that should have been my caption. Like, yeah. that's fucking perfect. But that's really what happened. Right. So like, uh, oh, I'm sorry, your the psychological affects the physiological. Essentially your, your brain can shift how your hormones and your metabolism and your hunger responses. So these things can happen and, and you can essentially mask the hunger, hunger signals that you're seeing. Um, and at the same time, you know, you, you might have a difference in hunger based on other things too. So for example, on Saturdays, I'm not nearly as hungry because I sleep in and I don't train. It makes a massive difference, right? I, I eat, I can eat the same amount of calories, quote unquote, but I will wake up, have my coffee. And then before I know it, I'm like, holy shit, I usually have my second meal by now and I haven't even eaten today. Yeah. And it's because I'm not doing anything. I haven't like got up and worked. I'm not using my brain much. I'm kind of just chilling. Yeah. I don't think about it. And we have errands to run. Um, so there's, there's certain situations with more sleep, less activity, uh, keep like keeping yourself busy. Those things can delay hunger as well. Um, so there's a lot of context here, you know, and at the end of the day, like most people who are in a deficit at some point, they will feel hungry. I think that if you're not doing any of those things and you're quote unquote in a deficit and you're not feeling hunger at all, then it might be something weird going on. There might be a down regulation of some hunger hormones um, or you're not in the deficit you think you are. Because yeah. um, one thing we got to remember, too, is the body's a very, very... Uh, I mean, a complex thing. Yeah. It did the compensation uh, that it can create is insane. So, like, this is part of the reason why, and this is something I've been digging into lately that is really cool. And we did a really good blog. Hallie wrote a blog on this for our website on G flux. And G flux is a really cool theory. John Berardi brought it up way back. And it's this idea that 
you eat more, you lose more. So instead of me creating a calorie deficit and eating less to lose more, how about I eat more? And because I have more energy, my energy expenditure goes up because now I can train harder, train more, go on more walks, do all these things. And it's, and it's adaptive thermogenesis in the positive nature, meaning I increase my intake and all my, all the activity and need and sleep, all these things go up and therefore I burn more calories. But the more advanced you get, the less that occurs, I believe. Obviously, there's not a, there's not really a study to show this, but um, I've heard people speak on this. And as you look at different areas of research, you can see the more advanced you get, the more your body gets good at compensating accordingly. And so they have studies of people who uh, do a bunch of cardio to um, basically try to do this, right? Like, oh, instead of me dropping my calories, I'm going to do cardio to lose fat, which I'd be a good example of this. This would be ideal for me. I would much rather eat more food and I own a gym. So why don't I just do more cardio and not create a deficit for food and I'll be fine. But the problem is, is when I do more cardio, my step count goes down every other part of the day, right? I burn less calories from all the day-to-day normal activities, walking, blinking, standing, all those kind of things because my body's compensating because it's doing more. Yeah. You know, so when I go burn more cardio, exactly. When I do more cardio on the treadmill, my body compensates by doing less caloric expenditure on everything else. And they have research to show that. Whereas I don't think that happens as much with somebody who's brand new. Um, That's why like creating a deficit through food is always going to work better or a combination of both rather than just one. Um, It's very hard to just lose fat through cardio because your body will compensate. Um, so I think there, you know, um, and that just goes to show like there's, there's these hunger signals. There's all these things that your body's going to compensate. It's going to change things, it's going to do things. Um, so it's really, really hard to say. You could be in a deficit, but the reason you're not hungry is because your body compensated and stopped doing so much shit, right? If your body is adapting better because you've been at this for a long time, let's say you create a, de- a 250 calorie deficit and your body naturally stops doing the day-to-day functions and activities that normally burn up to 250 calories just through your basal metabolic rate. But it does that because you cut calories. Totally. You're not going to know that. You're not tracking how many times you blink or how fast your fingernails grow. <laughs> you know, like random shit. Um, and fingernail grows. That's like obviously pushing yeah. it, but yeah. um, it's still part of your metabolism. But it, the point is, is that I think that people often say that. And I think you, you can't be sure unless you really pay attention to a lot of these other things. Like, are you still sleeping the same? Are you still taking the same amount of steps? Has your routine changed at all? Do you try to like take notes and body awareness? Like, are you a little bit more lazy? Like, do you notice that you're not getting the mail as often or or now you're trying to find the closest parking spot, right? So I think if you have normal activities, like you get the mail every day, you walk to get the mail every day, you walk your dog twice a day, you park, you always park as far as you can. You always take the stairs to the elevator. Like, Write down those things before you start a diet because those are the things that will just subconsciously stop being done as soon as you cut calories. And then you'll be like, why isn't this diet working? Well, it's because you started being lazy as soon as you started eating less. Your body's fucking smart, mm. you know? So um, kind of didn't answer your question, but kind of did. I think you did, yeah. In a way. So um, the answer is yes and no, you know? So, um, but that's a wrap for today, guys. So, uh, if you love this podcast, if you like this episode, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a five-star rating and review on both Spotify and iTunes. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening and we'll catch you next time.